Thank you for joining us on our Wednesday night study as we examine the works of Paul, particularly in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Well, tonight we're going to be starting in Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul had been talking in Ephesians chapter 5 about what a person's life looks like who is filled with the Spirit, back in chapter 5, verse 18. And so that person is joyous and thankful and selflessly submissive for the sake of Christ. Then Paul proceeds to demonstrate how this Spirit-filled submission is demonstrated through wives and husbands. But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues this train of thought to other relationships children, to parents, parents, to children, those working a job, those overseeing others doing a job, and how believers should live when engaged in spiritual battles. Now look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So believing children are instructed to obey their parents as it is the right thing to do. Now some people say that the phrase, in the Lord, refers back to parents, saying that obedience to parents depends entirely upon whether or not the parents are believers in the Lord. Some others would say that Paul is drawing a definitive fine line stipulating that obedience to parents only depends on whether or not the instruction and motivation from the parents aligns perfectly with the will of the Lord as it is understood by the child. However, in a mirror passage, In uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So it would seem that the obedience here, similarly to the submission in Ephesians 5, 21, is directly related to one's relationship with Jesus rather than one's relationship to the one being obeyed. Obedience to parents pleases the Lord. It follows his established order. We can't choose our parents, but we can choose whether or not we will honor them and thereby honoring the Lord. It is right to obey, even though the child may not completely understand why, because it is right. And in truth, that teaches us all the way to react for the inevitably coming moment when the Lord will tell us to do something that we will not completely understand, and we will have the opportunity to honor him through obedience, whether we understand it or not. Look at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this is the fifth commandment. It is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. This is the first of the Ten Commandments to deal with human relationships, as the first four of the Ten Commandments dealt with the relationship with God. This is also not only the first commandment with a promise, it is the only one of the Ten Commandments with a promise attached in this form. This promise that is stated with the Fifth Commandment is presented as a general principle for life. You see, to disobey and dishonor one's parents demonstrates a lack of self-discipline in a person's life. And a person who lacks discipline will only find instability and shortness in their own life. The commandment holds true for the individual and for the community as a whole. If there is honor and obedience in the individual household and family, they will find stability and longevity. But If there is a breakdown of honor and obedience within the household and family, then there will be a breakdown in the community collectively, providing widespread instability, chaos, and a general shortening of life expectancies. 
So spirit-filled submission to one another will have far-reaching ramifications beyond what we may initially feel our decisions can impact. Then, just as wives and husbands earlier, Paul hits both sides of the relationship. Just dealing with children, now he turns to parents. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that word provoke there means to make angry. The idea is that we would do or say something that might lead a child towards anger. In other words, we might do or say something that might influence a child towards anger, might influence them in that direction. Because our influence can have a profound impact, far beyond anything that we realize or expect. Our interaction with others, especially children, must be careful and gentle. As Craig Rochelle says, the way you speak to your children becomes their inner voice. Paul said in his mirror section in Colossians chapter 3, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So, Paul links provocation with discouragement, which, if we take the inverse of that instruction, means that parents are to be encouragers. So then, rather than influencing children towards anger, we are to raise a child in, uh, on the discipline, behavior, instruction, and teaching of Jesus. To put it simply, we are to disciple our children. Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 19 to make disciples. And the first disciples that we have to make are those within our own houses. Now, whether or not we have children, it's, this instruction isn't reserved for just those who have children or even just fathers. It's the influence you have on any child around you. Verse 5, bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, servanthood or slavery in first century Roman occupied Ephesus would have been much different from how America understands that term. For instance, that slavery was not based on a person's race in first century Roman occupied Ephesus. While first while the in, in the first century, Slaves were culturally thought of as property, or as Aristotle referred to slaves, a living tool. Many people sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts, and it was not a lifelong commitment, often. In addition, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the people would have been slaves. That's massive. So consider for a moment the makeup of a church in Ephesus. If the church meeting in a house had about 40 people, then 13 to 20 of those people would have been slaves, possibly, of some of the other people who were also in the church. Now, that created a whole new dynamic, because slaves and masters alike would be equal in the sight of God in, in the blessings and responsibility of the church. So, it is into that world that Paul writes of submission for the sake of Christ. Paul here does not make a societal political statement. Because as is always the case with Paul, his primary concern is the glory of God and the delivery of the gospel to every single person. So he tells these bondservants, these slaves, to continue serving their masters in all sincerity of motivation, giving their all as though they were serving Christ rather than their earthly master, which in fact they were as followers of Jesus. Now, Paul was specifically writing to a first century social structure that no longer exists in today, 2022. 
But through a modern context, the principles herein can still apply to today employees and employers. So accordingly, all of us, whatever work we might do for an employer, should offer that work to the Lord as an act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We shouldn't grudgingly do our jobs because we dislike or disagree with our employer. But we should consider every part of our job as an offering of praise to the Lord. Now imagine the most frustrating but necessary parts of your day. How might your engagement in those parts change if you were to do those things with an attitude of offering them in worship to the Lord? Now Paul doesn't stop there because look at the next few verses. He says, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with all with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So a person's work was not supposed to be done, or was not supposed to be done and, and done well simply when a boss was watching, or even because the boss was watching. People pleasers do that. And a follower of Christ is not to concern himself with pleasing people because people are fickle. Their allegiances and loyalty and favor wax and wane with their moods and perceptions, whether accurate or not. Rather, the believer is to do whatever they do as a servant of God, presenting their efforts and the quality of their work to him as a sign of love within their hearts. There should, be, there should not be any kind of reservation or resentment of a task because of who made the request or how the request was made. Because even as an employee, we are not doing it for any one person. We are serving Christ and not any person. Even though we may physically be employed by a person and receive our paycheck from a person, Paul is telling us that we are actually working for the Lord. So how we work ought to be reflective of whom for which we are working. And because we are working for the Lord, the enthusiasm, the purpose, the intent reflective in that work should be at its highest possible level. Though sometimes it is quite difficult. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. If we are following after Christ, then we will be doing our jobs wholeheartedly well and undoubtedly. If we are doing for the Lord rather than for people, much of what we do and how we do it will seemingly go unnoticed, unappreciated, or underappreciated. And in reality, Paul is telling us that someone does notice and that someone does appreciate. You see, the Lord is omniperceptive. He sees everything and he will not allow any action done in worship to him to fall through the cracks without remembrance. Though reward may only come in eternity, the reward will still come. There's a vast difference between receiving praise and acknowledgement now from other sinful beings or receiving acknowledgement in eternity from the perfect gift giver. So now in Paul's writing here, having addressed slaves or employees, Paul then turns to masters or employers. Verse 9. Masters. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
So Paul does not let the master off the hook simply because their actions were culturally approved. Masters, or for our context, employers, are to act similarly to the instruction Paul already gave to the employees. They are to do their jobs understanding that they are not doing it for some other earthly boss, nor are they doing it to receive higher profits. As believers, they, just like the employees, are supposed to be doing their job as an offering to the Lord, which includes how they treat those who are working for them. It was common practice in the first century to threaten in an effort to extract every last ounce of effort out of a person, and the slave was not allowed to respond in kind. Today, some, even believers, still use threats to force employees to do certain things, but Paul clearly states that the way in which unbelievers go about their jobs is not the same way that believers are supposed to do their jobs. So even the ones in charge, they need to understand that there will be an accounting of how their jobs were done. In an effort to please other people, in an effort to please themselves, or in an effort to please the Lord. Because even though culture and society may distinguish between employer and employee, the Lord does not. He is completely impartial. He does not show favoritism to an employee or to an employer. If they are believers, they are both individuals who are to be offering every single thing done as an offering to the Lord with the full intention of quality of work done to the fullest and the best of their ability. Thank you for checking out this next section of Ephesians as we've gone through Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. Uh, Join us again next time as we take a look at the next few verses of Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, continue on through the rest of this letter of Paul.